Hi everybody, JP here. Want to take a moment to tell you about St. John Associates. They're a great recruiting firm that was recommended to us by one of our listeners. They've been around for over 30 years and they match thousands of physicians with practices and healthcare systems across the country. They have an experienced team that works in all specialties, including neurosurgery and orthopedic spine surgery, and they have close connections with employers across the country. They will look at your CV, They'll match you with practices based on your preferences for geography and lifestyle. And all of this comes at no cost to the physician job applicant. So just visit them at stjohnjobs.com slash nspod to get started with your job search today if you're in the market. Again, that's stjohnjobs dot com slash nspod. Following that link will let them know that you found them through us. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Well, Happy New Year, JP. Uh, welcome to 2023. Happy New Year, Dr. Wang and everybody listening. Good to be back with you uh, in the new year. Yeah, I'm a little froggy, a little hungover from a lot of fun last night. Uh, you- you sound about the same, but I'm really happy to record our first episode of 2023 and uh, share with our audience some of our thoughts again. Yeah, I mean, that that's how it's supposed to be. I think uh, you and I and, and probably most people listening, whether they were at work or at home, were up late last night. And so we'll keep it short and sweet today and, and bring in the new year. Yeah, and I promised I would share my resolutions. I try not to talk about them, but uh, especially in a public public venue, because I feel like I'm going to fail if I uh, or be called out if I don't if I don't satisfy the requirement of of actually uh, meeting the resolution standards. But I, yeah, I you, thought you know, about it. it. It's actually interesting. Um, there's there's two schools of thought on that. Almost like how when you get an adrenaline response, you can view that as negative anxiety or positive motivation. There's actually a whole literature on when you say you're going to do something publicly. And depending on how you view it internally, either that can be some external standard that now you have to hold yourself to, and it's more motivating to achieve what you want to do. But then there's this other group of people where once they tell someone they're going to do something, they feel some level of accomplishment or satisfaction because you say to your friend, oh, yeah, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. And they go, oh, cool, good for you. And you, you feel some reward already. And then you're less motivated to actually follow through with it. So you and I will announce our goals today and then we'll see how we actually respond to making it public. So what did you come up with? Well, so mine is pretty easy to call out if I don't fulfill it. So I, it occurred to me, right? So I'm 50, I'm going to be 52. So I've been in this game for 20 plus years, right? Over 20 years mm. as an attendee. And it occurred to me uh, yesterday while I was rounding, and, and I, you know, I have a fair number of people in the hospital, somewhere between uh, usually six, and I think I had up to 16 people um, about a week ago. And so it's a lot of people, and very few are like these long-time trauma-like hangouts, right? So they're, they're people going through very quickly. So it occurred to me that when I round on patients, so probably 90 5% of the people I'm rounding on are just post-ops, right? They're people that I did surgery on and they're in the post-op acute care phase. They're either waiting for rehab or home, and then they're going to leave the hospital. Right. And it occurred to me that for the last 20 plus years, I've essentially been rounding kind of like a resident. And 
and I looked back on it. I don't I don't want to say with a gas or a pall, but I was like, okay. I even made a big deal with the resins. Like, okay, you got to go quickly. We got to go room to room to room to room. And if if you round slowly, it can actually be a very um, extensive, time consuming ordeal, right? Because you go right. to the the patient's room, and the patient has all kinds of questions. And now the families are back, so they have questions, and it's very repetitious. The same questions, right? Like, uh, what can I do? What can I do? Uh, what kind of medication is going to discharge me on it? All these things that get taken care of by nurse practitioners and PAs and the residents. So my goal was kind of like to get in and out of the room as quickly as possible, right? I mean, you've you've probably encountered this, right, JP? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, so for two reasons, right? One reason is that you're trying to get through rounds in a limited time frame. The second is because the questions are so repetitiously boring often. And the third, because you're actually chewing up the time of the whole team and they can't do any work while they're rounding, right? Right. So I I finally thought about it and said, you know, I'm not really rounding like an attending anymore. Uh, or I should say anymore. I'm never really rounded like an attending. I'm just basically coming around and making sure everybody's alive. Mm. So I'm going to change this year to rounding more like some of my mentor attendings where I actually make some commentary or, or ask some questions of the staff uh, a little bit like teaching rounds and also maybe ask some more questions of the patients besides like, how did you sleep last night kind of thing? Okay. Sounds and weird. So, I know it's, did I catch you off guard there? Well, it, I'm, I'm trying to imagine this and, and I, you know, I always say I can't imagine what your job is like because I haven't had it yet. And I know your time is so limited. So I wonder if this is going to wind up, do you think there will be some days of the week you'll do your extended attending rounds and then other days you'll have to do the traditional resident zipping around time? Or are you going to go whole hog and this is the only way you're going to round now? Well, I mean, look, I haven't done it yet, so this might be an abysmal failure, right? I might do the first (laughs) set of rounds and find that I'm there for like two hours or I I open the can of worms where the the patients actually feel comfortable asking all the questions and then I'm going to be stuck in the room for 25, 30 minutes, right? And if I do that 10 times, that's five hours, right? Um, So so I'm going to try it um, and see what happens. Um, because as, as, as you indicated, I am really busy and I know that some of my junior attendings, I'm watching them now, they actually spend a lot of time, but they have like two patients, right. Or one patient. Right. Um, and so I'm going to see what happens because yeah, I mean, you've got um, people in, in two hospitals across the street from each other. Um, that, that could really add up in terms of the time from your day, but I think it it'll be, be very satisfying for you. Well, <laughs> it could be incredibly, uh, it could be an incredible failure, right? Or the residents are going to hate me because like, I don't want to round with this guy anymore because he's taking too long, but I'm going to try it. I'm going to start with giving people the opportunity to maybe ask like one good question or maybe pointing one teaching point out. Cause I realized that I'm actually not teaching the residents when I'm rounding, which is not good. Hmm. Well, then I, I think as you said, any attempt at change, of course, could be a great success or an abysmal failure. But um, I think the change you're describing has the potential for greatness, or at least enriching everyone's part of that experience. The patients getting more face time and direct interaction with you instead of through proxies. The residents getting an insight into, you know, I, I'm sure maybe you'll throw in some classic just like pimping questions and stuff, but also sharing some of the insight about 
you know, what, what, what's going through your head when you see people and trying to get them out door and thinking about when you see them in six weeks and stuff like that. But then also, I, I think it'll be beneficial for you getting more time to talk with your patients and see how they're feeling. And I expect, uh, you know, some, some of the gratitude and some of the satisfaction they're having uh, after their procedure. Yeah, and God forbid I actually pick up something that's clinically relevant, right? I mean, it's... <laughs> right. Well, that, I mean, that goes without saying. That's what residents are for. So let's hear about yours. What is your resolution for 2023? Right. Mine, I mean, the, the professional resolution I came up with is appropriately much more resident level. I, I realized that as I've progressed each year of residency, I am working on more and more the, the three A's of an ideal consult, the ability, affability, and availability. Um, I think by definition, neurosurgery residents, if you're you know, still gainfully employed, you are available and you are able. But the affability can wax and wane depending on what time of the night I get called. And in fact, I, I think as I get older within residency, and take less and less call. One, because I'm more experienced and I've got more of the BS calls at two in the morning. But two, uh, because I'm more experienced and I kind of already know how this is all going to play out, my, I, I can be more short-tempered on the phone. And particularly as I take less call, then when I'm on call, I'm not used to getting it as much, you know? And so I, what I want to work on going into this year is that when it's two in the morning, and I'm taking in-house junior call maybe once a month or whatever, and I get some stupid call about what I know is a nothing, no pathology, nothing for neurosurgery, I can maintain my calm and, and, you know, try to be as pleasant and sweet while still being direct and helpful on the phone as possible. Oh, wow. That's a very, very uh, big resolution. That's a tough one. Well, it is. I mean, I, I, I've never had any issues you know, with patients, giving them all the, I'm very, I'll spend a long time in the room unless there's something really pressing. I'll, I'll talk to people until the cows come home, but more behind the scenes, you know, getting the call from a first year resident in the emergency room or something, I, I can definitely, well, come on, come on, come on. What is it? What do you want? And, and so I, I think, especially reflecting on the, the conversation I had with Dr. Levy a couple months back about EQ and emotional intelligence, I think that would be a good uh, domain of my professional uh, persona that I can try to flesh out and improve on going into this year. Yeah, you know, I I suffer from the same problem, especially with phone etiquette, because I kind of feel like, well, you know, you you come from a family of lawyers, right? So Mm -hmm. I... It occurred to me in clinic recently that, you know, when I'm talking to lawyers, they always have a ton of stuff to ask or talk about because they bill by the 15 minute increment, right? Yeah. So they love to keep you on the phone as a client because they're just adding more billable hours, right? But for us, we almost never um, charge or bill or are compensated in that manner. So our job is to get through the process quickly. And I feel like whenever people call us, they're, first of all, they're not paying for the call, right? And so I try to, and this is a horrible thing, I try to not incentivize people calling after hours. For example, like our our phone service at 5 p.m. switches from the nurses to us. And so a lot of patients know if they call at 5.05, they're going to get a hold of us and that we have to respond within minutes, whereas the nurses may call you back in a day or two. And so a lot of patients have figured out because you see this 
this increases uptake of calls like at 5.05 and then they want to keep you on the phone. And so like if I make myself too available, if I respond too quickly, if I'm too nice to them, I feel like I'm going to get barraged by even more calls. But tell me, tell me your opinion on this philosophy because this has many dimensions as well. Well, it's, it's interesting that you bring up the difference with on-the-phone interactions because I think we've all seen, and it's, it's been extensively talked about in the last five or ten years, as more and more human interaction has gone virtual and become text-based or through social media, and you see some of the vitriol and you know the, the Reddit or the 4chan or the YouTube comments or the classic examples of people behaving like animals and, and saying things and um, you know pillaring people and insulting people in ways that you never would if you were face-to-face -face looking somebody in the eyes. And I think being on the telephone is kind of one step toward that end of the spectrum where you, you're not in the same room as someone, you can't see their face and facial expressions. So a lot of that interpersonal empathy is lost. And so it's much easier to be short with someone. It's much easier to be annoyed or to ignore them and kind of listen with half of your mind while you're on the computer looking through charts and doing other things. And that's why for me with this resolution in particular, it's the phone interactions because once again, I, I've found just kind of reviewing my, my past performance, when I'm face to face with someone, it's almost universally a pleasant interaction and we all maintain you know, decorum and, and politeness because we're two people standing across from each other looking face to face. But when you're on the phone, it's a lot easier to remove yourself from all of those natural social cues that kind of keep people pleasant and polite to each other. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting because the way medicine is run, at least in this country, is that there's um, there's no cost to anybody to seek your advice per se in that way, right? So in other words, it costs the other person on the line nothing to call you except their own time, right? Right. So it's, it's an interesting system we have. Like when you take call, it's not like you see a certain number of consults and then you're done. Um, you are on call for that time period and then you could have a million calls or zero, right? It's the luck of the draw. And it usually works out in a, in a fair manner, but it is a very interesting thing in the concept of who has a black cloud, who doesn't have a black cloud. Like, do you feel that um, this will impact your the color of your cloud? Like, I always thought that the people who had the black cloud, and there was a pediatrics paper on this, that people don't really have black clouds, that the people who had the black clouds actually somehow inadvertently or even intentionally created all the extra chaos and demands mm. on the call cycle. And, and we actually tried this at USC, like the residents that were, that were actually almost seeking out consults in the ER, they'd be walking around looking for stuff and then they'd get the most consults. Interesting. Well, it's, I mean, the, the classic confirmation bias, you find what you look for. Uh, I think there was a, the example they always would teach us uh, back in my classes in college were People think it's such an exciting thing to find a quarter when you walk down the sidewalk. I guess it's an old example when a quarter was worth something. But then the, <laughs> the professor would say, well, why don't you go outside on the sidewalk and actually look for quarters? And if, if you're actually looking for a certain coin as you're walking down the street, you'd be surprised how many you find versus that feeling of a special occasion where your eye just happens to catch one and you go, oh, wow, look, a quarter. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Well, speaking of confirmation bias and psychology, um, we wanted to touch on this point about the signaling for the resident applicants, right? 
Yes, confirmation bias. Very uh, in, an interesting analogy there. It's a segue, right? Because you think about this new system. I think this is the first year it's being instituted for us, but certainly not the first year for resident applicants. I believe it came out of ENT. This idea that, for those who don't know, that the resident applicants, the medical students applying for residency, can designate a certain set number of programs. And, and the number is, is a set number, but it can vary, right, by specialty, where they say, well, I like these uh, seven programs the best, so I'm going to give them a signal, like a checkbox, like you're one of my top seven choices, at least as far as I'm designating through this, this channel of communication. Right. And uh, I do want to say up front, the interview process and the match process is still ongoing. So I think we're going to suspend some of our conversations on how did you view a preference signal and what did your program think about it? And even asking some applicants, how did you choose who to signal? We'll save that until after this cycle is over um, so we don't muddy the waters with anyone's match process. But this is a very interesting, as you said, Dr. Wang, psychological angle on the way our interviews and match are conducted that has not happened within neurosurgery before. It's a new variable in the equation. Well, you know, and, and I want to add that neither you nor I represent our programs officially in this capacity. So Rush and Miami, we're not speaking for our programs uh, just as individuals. So, you know, I'll, I'll kick it off by saying, look, I go back to the fundamental premise of the whole match process, which is the idea behind the match rank list is that you put the programs in order or the programs put the applicants in order of desirability, period. That the fact that someone wants to match with you or indicates they're going to rank you first or second or whatever should in no way impact your rank list. You should simply put your rank list out in the order in which you want it ranked. And it's blinded. And therefore, the signaling process to me seems a bit irrelevant, right? It's like, well, okay, so someone signaled to us they like us. So the whole goal is to like go lower on a rank list so that we don't have to go as high and we look better at the end. It doesn't matter in terms of who you're going to end up actually getting because what doesn't what matters is the list and the rank order, not the not the signal at all. Right. And I I personally agree with you. I think we had uh, Dr. Mark Shaffrey on in the past talking about the approach to the match process and how to make your lists. And I think you talk to a lot of people and they will say, well, of course, the program should just list the people that they want who are the best fit. And the applicants should just list the programs they want and who are the best fit. But I also think that there's a vast number of people who, even if they say that publicly, will still let their rankings be influenced by what they think is, quote unquote, realistic. I think programs will list people they think will, oh, would, would they really come here? And applicants will certainly list programs where they think I have a shot of matching. Um, either A, out of fear that some weird thing that they do with the code, oh, if I rank this at number one and they don't like me, that's going to throw off my whole rankings if they have a four or um, uh, incomplete understanding of how the match process actually works. Or on the other hand, I think people like to have a sense of control. And if they think we know this person is a sure bet, they like, they, they might sacrifice some lower probability of getting an ideal candidate for the sure odds of knowing I can pick that person and I know what I'm getting. I think that's a very real element to the psychology of a lot of people in the process. Yeah, that's exactly right. But I, there is a thing they are trying to address, which I think is an unintended consequence. And actually, it's, it's interesting how the world works. Because in the past, 
you had to fly to the programs to interview. So there was actually there was actually skin in the game. You had to pay the money. You had there were conflicts on the weekends and weeks. You could only go to so many places. I remember I applied to twenty two places. I ended up only interviewing at eighteen. I ended up canceling the last four interviews because I was just sick of it. I was done mm. with it, and I, I was running out of money. And so there was that, but there isn't that problem anymore because you can interview, you can literally interview in New York one day and in San Francisco the next without flying between the two. And so you can do these online interviews. And so if one believes that there is a, um, a set of programs that are more desirable, let's just call it that in general and aggregate, and I'm not saying there are, but let's assume there is such a thing. And if you were to assume that there are applicants that are more or less desirable, and there is some continuum there that is consistent across the applicant pool, then what's happened in the past two and a half years is what everybody has seen is that the top applicants are interviewing at way more places and chewing up way more interview spots. It's actually less democratic or less egalitarian, which is the exact opposite of what the people at the SNS were thinking. So the people who are not as good at applicants, if you want to call them that, have even less of a chance of getting an interview than ever. And I don't think this signaling rectifies that in any way, shape, or form. I really don't because they don't even get a shot. And I think that's the problem that really needs to be addressed for the people listening from the SNS. I mean, I get it. I understand what you're trying to do, but it is, it is, I think it's failing. And I'll tell you how I know this is because we have uh, at Miami a number of pre-residency fellows. These are folks who tried to match in neurosurgery and they failed. And now they're spending a year with us doing work like an intern or house officer, but they're not in our categorical program. And in the past, all those folks were getting a good number of interviews. Let's just call them at programs. And again, I hate to even use the term, but they were the, the, the less, less sought out programs. Those people are not getting as, as, as much opportunity in my estimation as they were in the past. And I think this is, this is the consequence of these online bullshit Zoom interviews. You, and you think that's because the... You could say the the market is flooded by by people taking up more interview spots because uh, they're virtual and so there's not the physical travel requirement. Yeah. So when I was interviewing, we knew there were about twenty applicants out there. Maybe there were thirty, and we saw them everywhere. Like these are the people that were the same group of people going around that got interviews everywhere. So there's there's the group of people that got interviews at eighteen out of twenty places, and I'm going to say I was one of those people, right? And I, it's not meant to be arrogant, but I was in this pack of people that everywhere you went, you saw the same people. And then there were the people that every time you interviewed, there'd be 20 applicants there. And there's like five of these people that like got interviews at eight of the 20 places they applied. Right. And then occasionally you'd go to a place, a very inferior program, let's call it that. Again, I'm not saying they're inferior programs. And you would see a handful of people who only got a few interviews. They were, they were at the sort of, I don't want to say at the bottom of the pack, but they were the people that had a little more difficulty matching, had less ability to select where they were going. And those folks in the top 20 could chew up about 18 to 20 spots or maybe 10. So they chewed up a finite number of spots. I believe those people are now interviewing at 30 or 40 places. And those people right. are sucking all the oxygen out of the interview process. This is my own buy. I have no role in the bigger picture of neurosurgery. I'm just an attending somewhere. This is my opinion what's happening today. And they're doing nothing to rectify this. And what's interesting. Because I, I think that's a trend that 
has been seen in the, in the even before COVID and virtual interviews, we saw that every year people were going to more and more interviews. And I think leading into the pandemic and the shift to the virtual format, we were all like my year, we were already approaching some asymptote where you physically could not do more interviews than the average applicant would, would do. And that was solely based on travel time, not, not even cost, because people will take out loans, people have family money, taking cost out of the equation. We were reaching the asymptote of how many interviews can you physically get to because of travel time. And it is interesting. And what I wondered at the time and, and what I wonder even here in your story back during your interview process, those, those top 20 people, as you described them, that top cadre, why would they flood the interview market, so to speak, like that. I, I always try to put myself in the applicant's position. If you're coming from a great school and you have great scores and great letters and you're check, checking all these boxes, what would motivate someone to do 50 virtual interviews going down to, as you said, maybe lower tier, quote unquote, programs than some of those more desirable ones? Is it just fear? Is it um, absolutely maximizing your odds. I, I, I never understood why someone would. Yeah, with, I'll give you an answer. Yeah. I'll give you two answers, JP. I'll give you the, okay. the, the answer of the stupid person and the smart person. Uh, the answer to the stupid okay. person is what you said. Okay, it's fear. They're like, oh, yeah, well, I better interview another place because otherwise I might lose a spot. The answer of the smart person is they're actually selling their product. You're, you're not just interviewing them. They're pitching themselves to you. And so we see right. this in the, in, the, in the aggregate later on that people who don't match with us end up doing a spine fellowship with us or whatever. And I'll tell you a funny story. And this is very interesting because in the past, what would happen is that they would, um, these people would fall off towards January. So this is during early match days. By January, people are canceling their interviews. Like I canceled my WashU interview. I'm like, I'm not fucking going there. Okay. It's, <laughs> it, is, it is a malignant place. Sorry, Ralph Dacey. It's malignant. I ain't going there. I heard enough about your program. I'm not even going to interview. You gave me an interview, but I'm canceling. And then that would open up a spot because you had to let them know earlier, right? Because you didn't want to not show up. So you had yeah. to give them a little bit of notice, right? And then Washu would reach out to somebody else and they'd say, hey, listen, guess what? A spot opened. Now you get an interview with us, right? And I'll tell you a funny story and I'm not going to name the program, but smart people are going to know who I'm talking about. There's a very, very, very um, sought-after neurosurgery program, extremely sought-after, that would interview almost everybody. And they would not interview, like, like, it was funny because programs would actually purposely schedule their interview dates the same day. Mm. And they would do that because they knew they were competitive. Let's just say, for example, and this is not a reality, UCLA and USC. We're going to, UCLA puts their date on, uh, on, on November 4th. We're going to do November 4th. Not November 5th, because people fly in and do both. There's that too, right? Like you could do two interviews, two places in the same city and, and save on the travel, right? So, you know, we're going to go directly against them, right? To right. make people pick because we don't want to be confused, right? And then, and I'm sorry, I'm divulging a lot of knowledge, but this is in the past. This is 30 years ago. But there was a very, very famous program that would interview everybody. And what they would do is you could go interview any day you want. There's actually two programs. Ah. Okay, so they'd interview you on a Wednesday or a Thursday or a Friday or a Monday or a Thursday or a Saturday. It didn't matter. You picked a date, okay? And you'd show up and you'd meet a certain number of the attendings. They'd fit you in. You'd go from attending to attending and you get to see these people. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. They're being very super accommodating, right? Right. And then someone told me, an attending told me this. 
I said, it's really great that you're accommodating. And it's, it's nice that neurosurgeons can be very honest, right? And an attending, a very famous attending told me, no, no, that's not what we're doing here. I said, really? And the person told me, we're pitching our program to you. So we want to pitch it to as many people as possible. Mm. And this is a very interesting, like, I don't think the applicants see this. This is an interesting psychology. Like, they see that, like, we're trying to get you to come to our program. But in terms of, like, how U.S. News and Aggregate looks at reputational, pro, you know, reputation of a program, there is a very long game of saying, oh, well, in 30 years, these guys are all going to be attendings, and they're going to think favorably about this right. place because we interviewed them and treated them well, and even if they didn't match here. Right. Now, again, I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist. I'm just telling you that's a very intelligent way to conduct an interview process that that has a dual role besides picking out residents. I agree. And, and frankly, I look forward to when this whole cycle wraps up and we can talk a little more openly about how these preference signals were viewed, what the experience was like for people on the trail this year, choosing where to send those signals. Um, and I look forward to talking about that with you, but also getting on some program directors, some students in the field right now, some of the people we talked with before the process and seeing if anyone's opinions changed or stayed the same or, or what it looks like on the back end of things once we wrap up. Yeah, it's a process and evolution. I know that everyone involved is well-intentioned, right? Everybody has intent. We all differ on ideology or philosophy or perspective. I, I think they're trying to do the right thing, but it will be very interesting to see how this iterates because we are clearly not in the final iteration in any shape or form. Um, so, so anyways, I understand that the folks at SNS are trying their best and doing their best, but, um, you know, it's okay to disagree too. It's okay to have a diversity of opinion and, uh, and hopefully we provide that here. So we are really, really looking forward to some great interviews in 23. JP, we've got a, a full slate ahead of us. And I want to thank again our listeners for making this podcast such an amazing success. Absolutely. We couldn't do it without all of you listening. So stay tuned in the weeks to come. We're going to be talking more about the interview process. And uh, as advertised last week, we're going to be talking about the fellowship process, um, why people do fellowships, what they get out of them, and and where they, they think it takes them in their careers to follow. So Dr. Wang, everyone listening, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2023. And we will see you next week. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.